0: Morning. So, if you think about uh, any job you've ever had, any kind of thing you've ever volunteered in or done before, the first time you do something um, is memorable, right? Is nerve-wracking. As a pastor, I remember the first wedding that I did, and I've done lots of weddings and they're um, wonderful and great, but I remember that first one because it was like, I'm supposed to know what's going on right now, you know, like I'm supposed to, to do this. And it's memorable because you're nervous. Uh, I remember the first memorial service that I led. I remember the first time that I prayed in a worship service. Uh, I remember the first time people came to me uh, in my office, and we' talking about struggles in their marriage, and did it, what did I think? And I was like, "I don't know. I, I, like that's, I mean, we can pray about that because I'm struggling with it too. I mean like, I, I don't know like, you know what that. It's like, you know, if you figure it out, please tell me, because I'm trying to figure that out myself. Like, you, you remember the first times you do things. And I remember very distinctly the first time I preached in the church where I first worked. Um, I was a seminary student working in Atlanta and had started working with college students. And while I was working with them, I had our senior pastor, who I was very close with, and um, uh, was a great guy, um, came up to me, and he said, hey, um, we got this Sunday, and it was probably like the Sunday after Christmas or something like that, you know? but it was like, we got this Sunday, and would you like to preach? And you've never done that, done that before, and so I spent, I was so nervous about it, I probably spent like 10 weeks writing the sermon do you know what I mean it was like I was thinking through like every word and which I do now I spend ten weeks on every sermon ever done. but it's like you're thinking through every word and every inflection in your voice and I'm running them by Beth I'm like what if I say it this way and she's like no one will remember like, like just just you know stop I'm like well what if I said it this way and um, just drove everyone crazy and the The day of the the sermon came, and I was so nervous about it, and at that church, we had two services. The first service was a setting more like this, kind of more of a a contemporary worship uh, setting, and I preached there, and I was really, really nervous. And then the second service was our 11 o'clock service, and it was kind of a more traditional service, right? And we have three wonderful traditional services uh, most Sundays uh, here. During the summer, we have two. Many of you, probably all of you, have been to a setting like that. you got to have that in your mind. Uh, it was my first time wearing a robe. It was my first time kind of in le- preaching in that sort of setting. And I was so nervous. And, um, and at the end of it, I was thrilled with how it had gone. Not because I thought it was a great sermon, but because I hadn't like really screwed up. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think I said anything heretical that I was going to get like fired for or burned at the stake for. Uh, I didn't, you know, do anything that I thought was overly offensive or at least unintentionally offensive. Now, normally you learn that long afterwards through 80 emails, but uh, I didn't think that I had, I had done anything like that. Um, there was just all this stuff where I'm, I didn't forget where I was, you know, and that's a good starting point. And so at the end of the service, I was riding such a high. And if you think about like a traditional worship service or like in our sanctuary, um, there's this middle aisle, right? And at the end of the service, the person who preaches walks up the middle aisle and you greet people at the back. There's like door, double doors like we have in the back and they open up and you stand there and you shake everyone's hand, and so I'm going up, and I felt so good. I was like high fiving people as I went up the middle aisle. It was like that worked and everything else, and I got to the double doors, and as I was looking at them, there was this guy standing there, this 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 guy, this older gentleman who I had never spoken to before in our church, and he had that look on his face, like you're in the library and just like the librarian just caught you like chewing gum and talking to people, like that look where you're like, oh, this isn't this isn't good, um, and he was staring at me and waiting for me. Now. Usually, as a pastor, after a sermon, when someone makes a beeline for you, you know it's not good, right? Like, most of the time, people don't come running up and trying to get to you to say how wonderful something was. So, we learn to avoid you. We learn to kind of, like, kind of, we don't do that. We do, actually, do that. We, 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 we do. We, we learn to kind of, like, lose you in the, in the crowds as we go. But I couldn't lose this guy because he's standing there, and I couldn't, there was nowhere else to go. I'm just walking up the middle, aisle, and the organ's playing, and so. And I get there, and he looks at me and goes, young man, do you know what time it is? And I'm like, oh, I, this is a question I can answer. Like, I, I thought you were going to ask me about, like, the nature of the Trinity or something like that. Or, and so I'm like, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's 12 minutes after 12. Exactly. 12 minutes after 12. Do you know how long a worship service is meant to last? I was like, well, you know we shoot for an hour? He's like, no, we don't shoot for an hour. It's an hour. A worship service is one hour. It is st- a service that starts at 11 and it ends at 12. We are 12 minutes late getting out of the service. And there's a part of me going, is this real? Like, is this like a, like a hazing thing for the first time you preach that you get this? And he goes, do you know why we're 12 minutes late? I said, I I don't, but I assume I have something to do with it. And he said, there are four things that took place in this service of why we were getting out 12 minutes late. The first is this. The prelude the organist was playing is meant to end at 11 o'clock, so we can begin at 11 o'clock. That's why it's called a prelude. It ended at 11.02. That means that we started two minutes late, wasted right there. Secondly, the anthem that the choir sang as they were collecting the offering continues to range between six and seven minutes. Can you inform the choir this is not a concert? This is not a place for us just to hear them. This is a time where when the the collection of the offering is taken up, it usually takes three to four minutes. We don't need to hear them for another three minutes. Another chunk of time that was wasted. Third, your sermon. You preached 24 minutes, did you know that? I'm like, no, I was just excited I got to the end. 24 minutes, if you can't say it in 20 minutes, we don't wanna hear it. That was a nice moment. Fourth and finally, the senior pastor was not preaching but was in the service. He noticed that he did one of the prayers. Can you inform him that when he's not preaching, we don't need to hear him pray for 10 minutes? Prayer should be three, four minutes maximum. You add that together, we got out significantly late, and I would like for you to take these comments back to the staff in your staff meeting this week and decide what you're gonna do about it. And I was like, bless you. Bless you, bless you, bless you. And he said, if you haven't, taken all of this in. Here is the bulletin. Now, there was a bulletin as you sit in our traditional service, and it has like all the elements. And by it, he had written the times that each element had taken along with his comments underneath. So the whole like, if you can't say in 20 minutes, we don't want to hear it, that was in writing there, just so that I got to read it. Uh, And he goes, you can take this to the office and decide what you want to do with it. And so, I mean, you all know me. I've been here long enough. You all know me. There are very, very few moments in my life where I can honestly say I was speechless. But I was speechless. I totally did not know how to respond to that. And so I walked, carrying this thing, and I walked into our senior pastor's office, and he turned around and he looked at me and he goes, oh, you met Franklin. (laughs) And I said, what? And he said, Franklin Bloodworth. That was the gentleman that you met in the back. I bet the the order of service has the timing, everything. He turns that in every Sunday. I was like, what? Every Sunday, every Sunday. He opened a, a file cabinet in his office, and there was every week's bulletins with Franklin's notes. We, and this is true. He got, he got Beth, who worked on staff there, to start developing an Excel spreadsheet for each week so that he could come in and know that there was an online version that people had access to to see how we had made the service too long and where we had delayed things and how we were personally responsible in our part for it. I tell you that story for a reason. I tell you that story because about a year later, we were starting and launching at this church a new college church. Now, the, my job there uh, was to work with college students. And we had this idea as our ministry on Sunday and throughout the week was growing to start a Monday night kind of worship time, right? Uh, it was a Monday night sort of gathering, we had pizza. We would uh, have some music and uh, a talk, and, um, and we had this idea. We're going to start at 7 o'clock on Monday nights. And our college, I mean, our our church campus was right next to Georgia Tech and Georgia State, right in downtown Atlanta. Uh, It was a great location for college ministry. And so the idea was that the students would walk over and they'd have food, and then we would just get to hang out on a Monday night. And so we wanted the whole church to get involved in this. So we started having sign-ups for people in the church. Like, we'd come on Sunday morning and say, you know, in two weeks, we're starting this ministry. It's going to be on Monday night at 7 o'clock. And there's all different kinds of ways that you all can get involved. You can pray. You can... For the ministry, you can mentor students, you know, during the week who sign up. Uh, There's all these different things, but there was one category where we needed people there on Monday night, right? We needed them present, and that was to be greeters, right? So most of the things people signed up for, like prayer, they didn't actually have to be there on Monday at 7. People signed up tons for that, like if I don't have to be present for it, but to actually be there and greet the students, nobody was signing up. Like week after week, all the sign-up things would fill up. Nobody signs up for greeting. So the Sunday before we were beginning our, our ministry, Franklin Bloodworth walks up to me on a Sunday after worship service, and I said, I didn't do it. I wasn't preaching. I didn't have anything to do with it, like whatever it is. And he said, well, I've seen your sign-up forms. And what I've seen on the sign-up forms is you've got people doing everything except greeting, and no one has signed up for that at all. And so I suppose that I'll need to sign up, and I will greet the students as they arrive starting on Monday night. And I was like, no seriously, no, 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 no. I mean, I had this image of Franklin. I looked at him. I said, listen, I'm going to talk more than 20 minutes. I can just tell you now, right? And you're going to, you know, I can tell the music's going to go too long. It's probably going to be too loud. Like, I just can tell you that right now. It's not going to follow kind of all the right stuff. And he said, Thomas, you might not be able to design a worship service properly. (laughs) And I said, thank you for that as well. But I'm going to properly make sure that every single student that walks in those doors is greeted. We had no other options. Nobody else signed up. And so on the first Monday night of the ministry, Franklin Bloodworth showed up 30 minutes before we started, dressed in a full suit, tie, polished his shoes, comes walking in, and you're thinking, man, these students are going to show up in shorts and flip-flops and baseball caps. This is just—this is— I so wanted to sit there and go, Franklin, say this. Don't say this. Please don't frighten anybody. Please, you know, just like whatever. But he was there. Students started arriving, and like the first night, we only had like 15 or 20 students show up. Franklin greeted every one of them by name. Every one of them, he learned their name. Every one of them, he learned what their major was. Every one of them, he learned uh, where they were from, what they liked. It was incredible. It was amazing. I, I was like, it was like the highlight of the first night because we were expecting like 400 students. We had like 15 show up. And it was like Franklin was the high point. He greeted, and the kids loved him. The students loved him. Second week, he's back. Third week, he's back. The ministry over the first year started to grow. More and more students started to come. Franklin got to know them all. He knew them by name. It It was incredible. The students loved him, and he actually started recruiting students to sign up to greet with him. He started emailing with them. We had to like teach him what an email address was, but he signed up to email and he started like organizing the students to show up in teams and to volunteer. He started training them of how to greet. And so you'd have these like six or seven students who were there early to greet and Franklin in his suit, every week in his suit. And he's there greeting as well. After a time, the students had, had their own team leaders for greeting so they could make sure everyone was greeted. Franklin didn't have anything to do. And yet he was still there every single Monday night. It got to working so well and I thought our relationship was so good that one time I passed him a note and I said, how long should the greeter on average be talking to the person becoming in the doors without freaking out, which I thought was funny. He didn't find it very funny at all, but it just worked incredibly well. And I looked at him finally one night, and I said, Franklin, you don't need to, I mean, this is amazing what you've done. And you've organized this, and you're into details and systems, and this has just been incredible. You don't need to come anymore. I mean, you, you have worked yourself out of a job. Why don't you just take next Monday off? He said, Thomas, I'm not here anymore because the students need to be taught how to greet. I'm here because seeing these students welcomed in week after week. Is now one of the high points of my week. I'm here because it brings me joy. I think that that is such a beautiful model of what it means to be community. It's, what it's a beautiful model of what it means to be church. And when we talk about the word church, that doesn't mean a building, this is not a church doesn't mean an institution or a denomination. None of that is what a church is. A church is a community of people. It's us. When we talk about church, we're talking about community. We're talking about relationships. We're talking about friendships. We're talking about people who are together pursuing Jesus. That's what church is. It's a community. And when we think about what it means to be church, what it means to be real community that's dynamic and that changes us, that's meaningful to us, I think that that is as close as you get to seeing what it's supposed to look like. Our scripture passage today shows the biblical roots of that. I'm going to bring it up here, on, not on there, here. Um, from Acts chapter 6, as we continue with our sent series going through the first half of the book of Acts, we see the development of the church, the expansion of the church. And this is what it says in chapter 6. Now, during those days when the disciples were increasing in number— the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should neglect the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the Word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. I have no idea if I pronounced those rights, but it sounded good. A proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread, the number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would take this scripture, this teaching, and mold and shape us of what it means to be community, what it means to be your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now friends, all of us are created for community. That's one of these core practices. Jill mentioned prayer. One of these core practices, four things that we see that the church about, we talk about is intimate community. And all of us are designed for that. Some of us are extroverts and we got lots and lots of community, lots and lots of at least people we know. Some of us are introverts. We've got maybe fewer people we know but there's a lot more depth in that. Whether you are an extrovert or an introvert, no matter what your personality type is, we are all bound together and that we were not created to live in isolation. We were created for relationship. It's where we find meaning. It's where we find purpose. It's where we find joy. You were meant to live in community. And outside of that, there will always be a hole, a void that is there that can't be filled any other way. And what we see in this first community, this first community of followers of Jesus, is that there are certain parts of what it means to be a part of a community that's meaningful and powerful and vibrant that is absolutely essential that we need to ask ourselves if we have here. And we're going to see some threads as the early church developed that we should be looking, we should see in previous weeks as we've been in this series. We're going to see again. For example, some of the things we see in this passage as this community develops is we see that it's a place where caring for the the most vulnerable people is an absolute essential. It is an essential of what it means to be, to live a healthy spiritual life. You know, you and I can make the mistake of thinking that there's these parts of our lives where we're filled up and there are these parts of our lives where where we empty ourselves out, right? Bible study, small group, um, uh, prayer life, that's where I get filled. Worship, I get filled. And then I go out and I empty myself out in serving and in getting involved in mission. I don't think the early church saw it that way. I think that they understood that all of these practices are spiritual practices, that when we empty ourselves and serve the most vulnerable in our midst, we receive something, right? Anybody who's ever gone on a mission trip, I haven't even run this by some of the middle school students who are here, but I promise you if you talk to the students that are back from Oklahoma City who were gone last week, That there are going to be many of them who say, yeah, it was incredibly powerful, and I grew the most, right? You go and serve, and you think, oh, I'm serving these people. But we come back, and we're the ones who have experienced so much good. We're the ones who change. I think the early church understood that. It wasn't this idea of, well, these are the areas I I empty myself out of, and this is where I feel depleted. It's in these things in serving that we feel filled up. You see here that there's uh, the thread of, of cultural divisions being bridged by the church, and as we've talked about in previous weeks, there is certainly something that we in our culture need to continue to hear about today. We see here that there are Hellenists and Hebrews because they're human beings, man, that, that, that are arguing and that are worried about who's got more and who, what do I have and, and everything else. That's what human beings do. And these Hellenists and Hebrews, these are both people who are, who are of the Jewish faith, but the uh, Hebrews would have seen the Hellenists as kind of like a little separate, a little tainted, not as Not as pure. Because the Hebrews lived in Jerusalem and they lived in Israel and they were kind of around the temple. The, the Hellenists were people who were Jewish but lived in different places and maybe had been influenced by Greek or Roman culture. So they were Jewish, but they had had a lot of influences on them that we probably wouldn't want. So these were people who lived with divisions. They were different categories. And we see that in the church, they're complaining here because they're not treated as equals. Well, we have to understand what, a, what an amazing thing that was because these people weren't equals anywhere. It wasn't like that the church was the place they weren't equals. There were these walls that said, if you were Hellenist, you were in this category. If you're Hebrew, you're over in this category. And they're already, by chapter six, we're seeing this idea that we're one people, one family of faith. And so they're complaining because we're supposed to be treated equal and we're not. That's an amazing thing that's developed already, that, that following Jesus is a place where we live in a world of all kinds of divisions. and In Austin and in Texas and the United States, we are divided by all different kinds of things. And we can't just say, can't, we, can't everybody just get along? Human beings have showed throughout history the answer to that is no. But if we understand that our primary identity is in something bigger than ourselves, it's in Jesus, then therefore we can say, well, that unites us even in things that make us a little different. We're, that, that title overarches everything else that makes us different. We are one people here. It's an incredible thing that's happening. That the church should be about. But finally, we see there's this idea of what it means to have a community of contributors and not just consumers. And this is really, really, really important. If we're going to have the kind of community where you're going to come alive, and I don't just mean church in this, I mean church being one part, but relationships, you were made for relationships, and if you are going to have relationships in community where you come alive, then that relationships and that community has to be built on all of us being contributors and not just consumers of community. You see that happening here in the book of Acts in a couple of different ways, and I think we should ask ourselves, are these things present in our lives today? The first is, as you see, is the apostles have this amazing ability to not hold on to power and needing to keep everything to themselves. If, if community requires that people are contributing, then we have to invite people in to do that, right? We have to create ways for folks to come in. And most people, when they have power like the apostles had here, we hold on to it. We insist on things being the way we like it. We, 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 we grab onto it and we're suspicious of anybody else who comes. It's an amazing thing that happens here where the apostles just give away this ministry. And it's not because it's not important, but they understand that what happens in any kind of system, any kind of business, any kind of, uh, of church, is that you're going to get to a certain point where if a few people do a lot of the work, they're going to get really burned out. And they're actually not going to do it very well. Because all of us have gifts. You have gifts, I have gifts, but None of, none of us are gifted in everything. We have primary gifts. And so what is what is really depleting for you, something you look at going, gosh, that's just such a drag to have to do that. There's someone else in this room that loves that. They find it life-giving. You're like, really? You, you, Franklin Bloodworth got energized by organizing greeting teams. That my head spins at the thought of organizing that, right? Of setting up some sort of system and how do you do leadership training for greeters? I don't know. I mean, I've never, but Franklin was amazing. at that. He came alive at something that we were like, can we unload this on someone? Like this is just gonna be, and it was indispensable. It, it made a huge difference to the community. We had a church that, that allowed us to kind of that it encouraged that kind of leadership. I mean, you think about just the story I told. Our senior pastor was amazing because he encouraged people to use their gifts. He encouraged me to preach that Sunday. And he didn't like read my manuscript and make sure it was all right. You know, he, he, he said, this is what we're about. We've hired you. We trust you. Go do it. Go do this thing we started this Monday night college ministry, and he allowed us to do it. He didn't micromanage. He didn't sit there and go, now you need to run it by me and how it's going to go, and I need to be involved, blah, 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 because that just creates a bottleneck, and it creates control issues that just kill and strangle an organization. He just released it and let it go, and we made a lot of mistakes, but as you see here and as we saw in this passage, the community thrives as people are empowered. The community thrives as people are empowered. Are you somebody that in community seeks to empower other people? Think about that for a minute. Do you seek to empower other people? Because no matter what relationships you have, you can do that. You can do that here in the church. We can do that in our friendships. You can do that as a parent. Think about parenting for a second. Parenting ought to be the ultimate place where we are working ourselves out of a job. I'm mean, i being serious. That's what parenting is. And we have an epidemic in our culture right now of helicopter parenting. A parents who are just hovering around making sure everything's okay, and if it doesn't go right, I step in and I make sure everything's alright. That doesn't help your child. I mean, I, I'm a parent. I, I understand the, the, the desire to just make sure and control and make sure everything's exactly the way it's supposed to be, but someday you're not going to be there anymore, and the only way that children learn is what we see in the apostles. They are modeled. They, they model it for them. They set up the values. They set up guardrails, but eventually it's like, hey, you've got to go serve this table, You've got to go serve the widows. And I'm sure that the way that the seven new deacons, and this is where the role of deacons comes in, who are caring, I bet they did it a little different than the apostles. I bet they had different forms and different structures, different organization. But they let them do it. That's what parent, good parenting should be. I mean, we have to do that with our girls, you know, when they're like, all right, I want to make breakfast this morning. And there's a part of you going, okay, we're going to get to clean up for an hour. But, you know, it's like we've, we've done this together. You've seen it. But sooner or later, you've got to learn to crack eggs. You've got to to learn how to do this. You've got to learn what it means to be involved in community and friendships. We can't just be running around all the time making sure it's okay. There are certain things that you've got to do, and we've got to set you up and empower you to do that. All of us who are in community ought to be seeking to work ourselves out of jobs. Franklin Bloodworth did an amazing job of that. He worked himself out of a position because he kept empowering other people. And the community benefits, and people thrive. But the second part in this is that while we have to be empowering other people, while leadership at its core is not about micromanaging and doing it yourself, but it's about empowering people and guiding and then getting out of the way, we also need to see that that requires people in community understanding that they need to step up and use their gifts, that they need to step up and use their gifts where they are uniquely called. Every single one of you in this room has a unique thing that you can contribute to this church to this community, to Austin, to your neighbors, to your friends in school, to the people you work with. You are uniquely placed. You have unique gifts to make a difference. And we have an epidemic in our culture of consumerism. And by consumerism, what I mean is, we have this idea that life is gonna be perfect if we just get to sit back and receive, right? I mean, Beth and I have had conversations about how awesome we'd be if we won the lottery. We would be incredible if we won the lottery because we would be really generous and we'd keep driving the same cars and, I mean, all the stuff. Like, if we won the lottery, we would be amazing at that. This idea that, like, if we could just retire and just go on trips whenever we wanted to and just have everything provided and just eat out at any restaurant whenever we wanted to, that, like, life would just be better, right? If we could just retire at this level. Unfortunately, have you seen people who have won the lottery? Often in just a few years, they're bankrupt, Because you just throw everything at this lifestyle. You never really feel good. You just take and take and take, and nothing is ever filled up inside of you. We have to understand that if you want to be a part of relationships that are meaningful, it can't just be about sitting back and receiving, right? It's one of the problems in church. We come, it's like, well, do I like the sermon? Do I like the music? What's the style? I don't know. I'm going to go find somewhere that suits my needs. Well, that's one important part of it. But if you don't find a place to get plugged in, you're always going to just be skimming along the surface and not get the true joy of what being a part of a community is about. How can you step in? Where can you get involved? What are the things that maybe you're involved with now that you need to stop being involved with because they're not life-giving to you? They're not living in your primary gifts. And for others of you, what are the things that you need to step up and see? Summer is a great time to think about that. Franklin Bloodworth at the end of that time said, I'm not here because you need me anymore. I'm here because this is where I have so much joy in seeing this happen. There are people in this church, people in this church who we would all look at and go, man, they've got so many friendships, and they're so connected, and there's these deep relationships, and it's meaning. And we have to move beyond a consumer mindset that says, when I get those kind of relationships, then I'll kind of get involved too. Because for every one of those people that I've spoken to, it's not that they got all connected, felt all connected, and then got involved. It's that they committed to being a contributor, and that's where relationships happen. They contributed in their different ways using their ghosts, and that's where friendships happen. If you want to have a meaningful relationship in a covenant group, you don't get to sit back until you feel it and then commit to the group. You've got to commit to the group up front and then trust that in that, there's going to be relationships that happen. If you want to get involved with other families, if you want to get involved with other students, you don't wait to feel it and then commit to doing it. You commit, and then things happen. Then depth happens. Then meaning happens. Then community happens. As this new church was developed, they experienced joy and flourishing in their midst. Franklin Bloodworth taught me that. He also taught me to keep services at 60 minutes. I I I haven't learned that one yet. I'm still working on it. I guarantee you I'm over 20 minutes now, just so we know. But he taught me something about how it is we find joy and meaning. He used his gifts to make a difference, and he was empowered to do so. What would that look like for you? What would that look like in your life? There are all kinds of different ways and places and opportunities for you to be a contributor to the life of community. And if you do that, whether it's public or private, in big ways or small, the community will flourish. And so will you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you continue to shape us and mold us as a community, as your people, to be a community of contributors, not just so that we become busier, not just so that it depletes us, not so that it just takes away, but so that we might have depth and meaning and purpose. It's in community we come alive, and we can't come alive without commitment, without contributing, without using our gifts. Lord, help us to be a people who seek to know how we can make a difference, to get involved so that we can find meaning in our connections with others, and help us to be a place that encourages others to find that, that opens doors of possibilities for people. Help us to be empowerers who welcome others in rather than holding tightly to what we have. Lord, if we do this, this place and each of our lives will spring to life, As we see your church do time and time and time again, may it be so for us. May we be this kind of people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.